Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. This is the opening minute of John Singleton's debut feature, Boys in the Hood, released on July 12, The audio montage plays over the Columbia Pictures logo of a white woman holding a torch, personifying America just like the Statue of Liberty, which fades out to a black screen where we see the movie's title followed by two quotations. The first quote reads, One out of every 21 black American males will be murdered in their lifetime. The second quote reads, Most will die at the hands of another black male. Neither quote is sourced, and the word black is capitalized. Then the black screen cuts to a full-color, low-angle dolly shot pushing into a red stop sign with a descending jet overhead. I enrolled at the USC Film School the month after Boys in the Hood was released. Hey, come to Los Angeles. You and your family can have peace and tranquility. Hello, my name is Elaine, and I'll be your tour guide through South Central Los Angeles. How to survive in South Central? A place where busting the gap was fundamental. No, you can't find the shit in a handbook. Take a close look at a rap crook. After unpacking my personal effects in my first ever dorm room, I taped up an article about Singleton that appeared in the Los Angeles Times, as did a number of other film students, and I was mailed copies from family members all over the country for the rest of the school year. The article was a fluff piece, intended to give a context for a runaway hit, Boys that had opened to brisk business by uncovering the commercial value of racial minority audiences. I read the article and immediately admired Singleton. I thought he provided a good model for career success at precisely the right moment. I was looking for such an example. His experience seemed to say, do well in school to earn enough money to make a dream project that opens all doors to the future. In my second month at USC, over homecoming weekend, Boys in the Hood was presented in USC's Bovard Auditorium as the showcase accomplishment of a recent alumnus. Because my parents also attended USC, they drove up for the weekend's revels, and we agreed to see Boys in the Hood together. The resulting experience was far more sobering than the earlier screening among friends had been, in which profane male posturing caused us to mimic the patterns of coming of age we saw on screen. Retrospectively, I now see how thoughtfully the movie was curated by school administrators and how carefully the story was developed by Singleton in his scene writing as a call to action among those of us not yet woke to the problems of impoverished life in an American city. Sitting with my mom and dad, watching Boys in the Hood, laughing at the profane humor and shaking at the violence, I realized, better than I had before, 
how desperation makes monsters and angels both, but also how a movie can operate at many levels simultaneously, depending on whoever is watching in whatever setting. As a narrative, Boys in the Hood is the coming-of-age story of Trey Stiles, Desi Arnaz Hines II, who acts out in school. His single mother, Riva, Angela Bassett, worries for his safety, ships him off to live with his father, Furious, Lawrence Fishburne, credited as Larry, so he can learn how to be a responsible man. In the South Central Hood, where Furious lives, Reagan is the sitting president, the Olympics have just been presented at the Coliseum, and the sound of jet planes, cars, traffic, and helicopters presses down on the action with a sense of living inside a penal colony. Trey quickly makes friends with neighborhood kids, all of whom grow up under the pressure of gang violence, drugs, and police brutality, with few options to escape from an invisible fence that surrounds black Los Angeles. Cut to 1991. Trey, Cuba Gooding Jr., is in his senior year at Crenshaw High. He works a retail job, has college ambitions, and is viewed by all as a shining example of what black youth might accomplish with hard work and discipline. His best friend, Ricky, Morris Chestnut, is a star athlete with a live-in girlfriend and toddler son who hopes to win a college football scholarship. Ricky's half-brother, Darren, known as Doughboy, Ice Cube, is a parolee with ties to the Crips, who lives with Ricky's young family in the home of their overrun single mother, Brenda Tyra Farrell. Okay. Baby, do anything. Talk to Darren, father. Talk to him seriously. Mm-hmm. I am so sick and tired of him going in and out of there. Maybe some of what you got to rub off on it. Things go wrong when Doughboy brushes up against a rival gang. In the meantime, Trey pressures his longtime Catholic girlfriend, Brandy, Nia Long, to have sex. And Ricky successfully hosts a USC recruiter who supports his interest in a post-sports career. Things escalate through a series of father-son vignettes between Trey and Furious and a run-in with beat cops that forces Trey to present himself honestly and in tears to Brandy, after which the pair make love. Then a carload of Crenshaw Mafia gangsters harasses Doughboy's crew and Ricky is shot dead. Trey joins Doughboy to avenge Ricky, but he leaves the hunt before there is bloodshed. Boys in the Hood ends with Trey meeting Doughboy on the morning after Ricky's murder. Doughboy is upset because he recognizes the feedback loop of violence that will eventually kill him. He tells Trey, Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. Trey goes back inside his house while Doughboy walks away, and we learn through a scrawl on screen that Ricky was buried the next day, and Doughboy was shot dead two weeks later. But Trey and Brandy escaped the hood for Atlanta, where he enrolled at Morehouse and she enrolled at Spellman. That's the surface layer of the movie. We meet appealing young people, wearing the fashion and hairstyles of the time, using appropriate slang for teens in South Central, and otherwise winning us over by presenting a little scene view of black America. The didactic level of Boys in the Hood, the lesson-y purpose behind the straightforward coming-of-age story, arrives in two main sequences. First up, is a story-stopping, multi-minute lecture from Furious to Trey and Ricky about the importance of minority communities running their own affairs. The sequence begins this way. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black, 
black owned with black money just like the jews the italians the mexicans and the koreans do ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value it's these folk shooting each other and selling that crack rock and shit well how you think the crack rock gets into the country we don't own any planes we don't own no ships but we are not the people who are flying and floating that shit in here I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see, black oh, yeah. people yeah. selling the rock, right. pushing the rock, yeah. pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. It wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Now, if you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. But they want us to kill ourselves. Yeah, the best way you can destroy a people, you take away their ability to reproduce themselves. Who is it that's dying out here on these streets every night? Y'all. The second key didactic moment is a strong woman monologue that Riva delivers to Furious from earlier in the film when they disagree on the right way to parent their nearly adult son, Trey. Of course you took in your son, my son, our son. And you taught him what he needed to be a man. I'll give you that, because most men ain't man enough to do what you did. But that gives you no reason. Do you hear me? No reason to tell me that I can't be a mother to my son. What you did is no different from what mothers have been doing from the beginning of time. It's just too bad more brothers won't do the same. But don't think you're special. You may be cute, but not special. Drink your cafe all day, it's on me. In each of these two cases, young me didn't care for the filmmaker expressing a point of view so overtly that it distracts from watching Trey and his friends deal with what happens next. Middle-aged me, however, is more tolerant of this moralizing. Now that I'm a parent, I can better see the advocacy performed through Singleton's script, whereby he sets a frame for Trey's life that equally involves his parents, friends, neighbors, and enemies, as well as the rest of us, because not every young black man has the resources we see poured into Trey, which were also poured into Singleton, giving that this is a heavily autobiographical story. From this point of view, I have a better feel for why my parents reacted so strongly to the homecoming screening so many years ago. They could easily empathize with the terror and satisfaction of watching a child grow out of a natal home, as I had done, and step into a world that might furnish discomfort, even death. Having recently seen Boys in the Hood with a group of college students, I was reminded how much the movie owes to the general style of American films in the early 1990s. There's a synthetic sound to the score by Stanley Clark that could just as easily be used to emotionally manipulate any movie from the early 1980s through the middle 1990s. There is also a sun-drenched, dreamy glow to the imagery by Charles Mills that often captures the sunning indifference of passers-by to the violence in the streets that are otherwise so realistically rendered. The sense of realism, which is carried partly through set design, props, and costumes, is turned into an expressionist impulse with the presentation of LAPD surveillance helicopters and spotlights that carve up the image and soundtrack, particularly in the final third of the story. The point about black Los Angeles being an annex of county lockup is plainly but even obvious, although it does compel Trey's escape to end the movie. 
More problematic is the constant refrain of casual misogyny in the language of boys aspiring to become young men, often at the expense of the girls they insult and objectify through rituals of lying, comparison, and ridicule. The supporting character, Shalika, played by Regina King, offers a small corrective to this rhetoric when she argues with Doughboy and two other members of his crew. But she is one young woman facing three practiced young men. Why every time you talk about a female, you gotta say bitch, a hoe, a hoochie? Because that's what you are. Nigga, fuck you. Can Boys in the Hood still move a spectator today? Can it still adequately describe the experience of urban poverty in such a way that moviegoers will take up Singleton's epigraph to increase the peace? Is it more than a prestige picture from a big studio, Columbia in this instance, working to include diverse voices, Singleton in 1991, as a sop to affirmative action principles at the close of the Reagan-Bush era? Before re-watching Boys in a College Setting, I first showed the George Holiday videotape of the Rodney King beating from March 3, 1991. Holiday's video is four months older than the debut of Boys in the Hood, and I used it to set a room tone about historical context. My point was not to wallow in state violence. I simply wanted to reconsider what options were clear to a young person of color who looked at society in 1991 to see no place to thrive, only victimization on a roadside surrounded by upwards of 15 armed police officers. In the case of Trey Stiles, as in the case of my one-time idol, John Singleton, the best outcome was and is academic success. That ticket out of the hood connected me a long time ago to the writer-director of Boys, as it always has, but it now connects me to the effort of Furious and Riva, who want their son to become more than his society shamefully tells him is his limit. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boopity-doo!